Good morning. It's great to be here this morning. Uh, welcome to every one of you. Uh, all the super familiar faces, all the fairly familiar faces, and some brand new ones out there as well. It's great to have you here this morning. The last several weeks, we've actually been walking through a series called Tabernacles, and we've been exploring some of God's moral boundaries. And um, most of you have been here the whole time, so I'm not going to reteach the entire thing, but just to catch you up one more time, here's the bottom line. Whenever we talk about God's moral boundaries from a biblical standpoint, what we're really talking about is God himself. We're talking about like who he is. We're talking about the way he has revealed himself to us, the way that he has um, shown us who he is and what he expects of us in every direction. Sometimes as human beings, we tend to fixate on the lists. And so in this particular series, I haven't actually spent a lot of time on the lists. And the reason is not because they're important, not important. They're very important. If God says he loves something, if he commands something, and we claim to follow God, that's a pretty important thing to get on to our personal list. We need to do the stuff he says to do. We need to prioritize the things he says he loves. If God says he hates something, if he forbids it. Those need to be on our to-don't list. We absolutely can't just say we follow God and still just keep doing those things. That This is an absolute just bottom line thing. If you're a follower of God, you follow God. That's, it's a bottom line kind of an idea. And yet what we focused on is not so much the list. And here's why. Because what the lists are is just a small part of his big revelation to us as who he is. His, the things he loves, the things he hates, the things he commands, the things he forbids are just part of who he is. And he has painted these elaborate pictures in nature, in his word, through Jesus Christ, and in so many other ways. And so we've been focusing on those. Uh, on Sunday nights right now, we just started a new series called Five Love Languages. And let me just use that terminology. God's, two of God's big love languages are trust and obedience. Just throwing that out there. If you trust him enough to obey him, whether you agree with him or not, whether you understand or not, whether you get it or not, whether you would have thought of it yourself or not, he blesses that. And that's some encouragement to anyone who wrestles with these things, because I guarantee you every single one of us, no matter which list you're looking at, where God says, do this or don't do this, there's something on that list that's going to bug us on the inside. But God's big dream is this, not just to get us to, con to conform, but to transform. He wants to set us free. He wants us to live, truly live the way he designed us to live. So in the New Testament, here's how this works. Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament, uh, everything in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and all the images, the law and the prophets. He's fulfilled all of that. And in the New Testament, instead of this beautiful image that we had that God created himself of the tabernacle, we're the tabernacles. He lives in us. Just in our bodies, we can walk through the whole process that God designed that was symbolized back then. We can actually walk into God's presence. And I don't know if you've even noticed that this particular diagram is a little, it's deliberately vague, but this whole thing, if you hadn't picked up on this yet, I want to point this out, and then we're going to kind of just go through a bunch of awesome, really exciting stuff this morning. But it's in the shape of a cross. If you, they didn't have drones back then, but if you could have driven, uh, flown, driven, 
If you could have flown a drone over top of the Old Testament tabernacle and started at the bottom, it would have been a lot like going up and around this cross right here. At the base, you would have seen, at the base of the cross shape, you would have seen the sin altar. Just like on the cross where Jesus' feet were, that's where most of the blood would have gone down. As you went a little further up, you would have seen the basin that represents cleansing. Don't forget that Jesus on the cross had his side pierced in blood and water flowed. God uses blood and water consistently throughout the scriptures to represent cleansing. Don't forget that as he was hanging on the cross, he was praying. If you walk straight up the center, you'd, the next thing you'd pass would be the altar, the prayer altar. This was about where Jesus's mouth was, where he was praying for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. If you go a little bit higher, you've got where his eyes, his ears, his head, his brain would have been, and that's where the holy of holies was. The Ark of the Covenant, the actual presence of God. And then if you would walk back, back and forth in the holy place where we explored last week, you would have seen on one hand, and I use that word deliberately, on one hand you would see the light, you would see the, what represents his revelation, and on the other you see the bread that represents his, his provision and represents the fellowship that he wants to have with us. Isn't that beautiful? It's absolutely incredible how detailed God did with all of this. So we walked through this. This is what the original tabernacle looked a lot like. Um, it, and you would walk through this. Inside the tent was the holy place. We're going to move really quick here, the slide people. Um, we're going to get to the book of Hebrews right now. During my study this week, I actually, I've told you many times, this is kind of how I am. I am a question answer. I'm a ditch digger. I get, I get derailed. And I got derailed this week because um, I started reading the little passage from Hebrews that I was going to read to you today. And I noticed that it says something really weird. It says that the, the prayer altar was inside of the Holy of Holies, where all the other parts in the Bible, it says that it's inside of the holy place. And it was all one big tent, as you just saw. It was one big thing. But there was a curtain there. There was a divider. So the little hairs go up on the back of my head. What's going on? So I did way too much research this week. And I'm going to give a little bit of this. If any of you guys are huge, deep question answers like me, I'll, I'll, I'll gladly talk to you even more about it. But I at least want to give you a hint. Because this, this, what I did discover was actually pretty cool. But before we go there, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Hebrews. Hebrews is one of the few... Books in the Bible that scholars have not really ever questioned that much that it belongs in there uh, or asked that many questions. You've got a book called Matthew. People go, well, did Matthew really write it or was it somebody else? On, on some level, people question this. Nobody's really doubted that much about Hebrews. Another thing that's weird about it, though, is nobody knows who wrote it and nobody knows for sure who they wrote it to. Here's what we do know. It's, it's written in the most elegant, most perfect Greek there is. This is like whoever wrote this and whoever their target audience were, were highly educated. Not only that, educated not just in how they could read and talk, but also everything they read. 
And it doesn't translate into English very well, uh, uh, but there are little, all through it are all these little inside quotes and inside references. The original readers would have recognized some of the words um, that they use, the specific spellings and things like that as references to specific writers from the Hebrew tradition, from the Greek tradition, from uh, various poets and various things. There's layers and layers of stuff going on. There's, uh, to, to read the book of Hebrews and really study it deep is like way deeper than just kind of a simple, you just can't get there on the surface at all. So let that kind of percolate for a second. We'll come back around to that in a moment. But let's start, let's read together Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. This one's pretty simple, and we need to start our journey for today. Here we go. Hebrews 1.1. 1, 1. Long ago, God spoke many times and in many ways to our ancestors through the prophets. And now in these final days, he has spoken to us through his son. That's pretty straightforward. Now, it harmonizes really well with all the other spots in the Bible that talk about Jesus being the ultimate revelation of God. The Apostle John actually calls him the Word and opens his gospel with this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were made through him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was light. And that light was the life, of, I'm sorry, in him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. Jesus was God's ultimate revelation from the very beginning. The written word, the spoken word through the law and the prophets, all of it culminated with Jesus. And he continues to reveal himself through his Holy Spirit and through all of that today. Let's read, knowing that, let's read this verse from Hebrews as well. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Have you ever experienced that, reading the word? Sometimes it happens even in sermons or in Sunday school classes or reading, reading the Bible all alone. But whenever, you know what I'm talking about, right? Where it's just all of a sudden it's, it's talking to you. It's a story you've read over and over. It's a passage you've read over and over. It's a verse that you memorized when you were a child. And all of a sudden it's talking about that day, today. Just raise your hand real quick. Who's experienced this? Uh, almost everybody. That's because it's alive. It's powerful. It's living and active, some translations say. It's, it's, it's God himself, the living word, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God is still interacting with us in this printed page. He's still interacting with us in this app that some of us use. It's all, it's all of the above. He's still working with us. He's still revealing himself Galatians 6, 7 through 9. This is just a reminder. If you think you're hearing from God, and whatever you think God is saying conflicts with something that's in the written word, you're not hearing from God. I'm going to say that one more time, because this is really important when we're talking about moral boundaries. And if you miss this, you've missed the whole thing. God does continue to speak through his spirit. He continues to speak in our hearts, among us, in share times, through sermons. He speaks through people. He does that. But the real God, the real spirit of God, the real true word of God, Jesus Christ himself will never contradict 
what he said in scriptures. He will never contradict these kind of deep images that he has embedded in everything else. He's not going to change what's on his to-do and his to-don't list. And if you think God is telling you something differently, that's not God. That's all I know. I'm not sure who it is, but I can tell you it's not God. You with me on this? I I hope so. I hope that was very clear. Galatians 6, read this with me. Don't be misled. You cannot mock the justice of God. You will always harvest what you plant. Those who live only to satisfy their own sinful nature will harvest decay and death from that sinful nature. But those who live to please the Spirit will harvest everlasting life from the Spirit. So let's not get tired of doing what is good. At just the right time, we will reap a harvest of blessing if we don't give up. Let's leave that up there for a second, but I want to just refer you to another passage. If you're writing down, if you're taking notes, hopefully the little highlighted purple words have stuck out to you. But all of you might want to write this down or just say it a couple times in your head because I'd like you to go back and read this later today, and I, I didn't get it into the bulletin insert. Luke 15. Can you say Luke 15? Luke 15 would be very, um, very familiar to almost all of you. It's the three lost stories. It's the lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And in each one of these, you see someone, whether it's a a coin, which, you know, kind of inanimate object, but it gets lost and then gets found. Then you see a sheep that wanders off. The sheep kind of It's its own fault that it wanders off, but it gets found. And then you see the son. We'll come back to his story in a second, but he really, really derails and then gets found. We reap what we sow, but thank God that's not always the end of the story. And this is one more thing. As we as start to turn a corner, start wrapping up this moral boundaries thing, I, I, I hope that you're not missing this. God doesn't compromise. He doesn't change. He doesn't, he doesn't switch his rules. He doesn't, he doesn't bend them for us. But there is redemption still on the other side. When we repent, when we come back, there's still hope on the other side. He lets us come back. He wants us to be found. He wants us to be transformed. He wants us to be set free. That never changes either. There's always a way home. Back to Hebrews, another thing that the writer and the the original readers of Hebrews would have been very aware is the ongoing conversations and letters and teachings about Jesus and the church that were happening in real time at that moment, what we now call the New Testament. They were aware that they were, they were, all of this stuff was just kind of really opening up to them. And, and they were so excited about it. All of these things that they'd grown up, legends almost, uh, actual scriptures they'd had to memorize, huge chunks of, everything that they'd grown up was now coming true before their eyes. 500 years of silence, no prophets, no new revelations, no new scriptures, nothing from God for five centuries, and boom, here's the Messiah, and here's the ultimate fulfillment of all of that. And their minds are just blown, and so they're kind of talking in little spurts. Have you ever, ever done that, where, where you're like so excited about something, and you're like, and, and so then we, we, we and then we, and, and, and then he, yeah. Have you ever told a story like that? And that's, that's kind of, you get that sense, even amidst the, the eloquence and everything else in this passage. But let's, let's look at Hebrews 9, 
1 through 3. This is the part that tripped me up earlier this week. Here, I'll, I'll just read it to you. The first covenant between God and Israel had regulations for worship and a place for worship here on earth. There were two rooms in that tabernacle. And the first room was the lampstand, a table, and the sacred loaves of bread on the table. This room was called the holy place. And then there was a curtain. And behind that curtain was the second room called the most holy place, or the holy of holies. And then it goes on and it talks about the altar being in there. And if you remember, geographically speaking, as, as far as the way the, the room was laid out, um, it was right there. There's like, here's the curtain, here's the altar. It, it, it's right there, but it was different. So that really messed with me. What's going on? What are they trying to say? What little reference are they tossing? Is this a mistake? It, what, what are they trying to tell us? We'll come back in a second. <clears throat> Here's some things we know for sure. Um, Spielberg actually got the Ark of the Covenant pretty right as far as we know. Here's some things we don't know. Nobody really knows what cherubs look like. I actually went um, way down too deep of a rabbit hole on this one as well um, this week. I, I love to research and sometimes I waste some time doing that. So it was kind of confusing. I really wanted to tell you, here's what a cherub looks like. I can guarantee you it's not a little fat baby with little tiny miniature wings. That's not it, okay? Um, it might be pretty much like that, human looking with wings. Um, there are animal versions that look like lions with a, a guy's face and wings. There's bird bodies and then a, a child's face. That's as close as you get to like a child. There's, a, I already wasted too much time. We don't know what the cherubs look like, but that's pretty close. There were cherubs touching their wings on top of the mercy seat. Are you with me? We're just going to move on. Uh, his version was also a little bit too small. It was actually uh, over five feet long. It's pretty big. Had to hold the, the original um, Ten Commandments, the stone tablets that the Ten Commandments were written on. Also, Spielberg missed the whole point. He thought that this, this was like some just really important talisman or some, this is a special thing that belonged to the Jewish people as opposed to the actual presence of God. He missed what it was really supposed to um, symbolize. But still, that's pretty close. That's one of the best images I've ever seen. That's about as close as anybody's got. Let me tell you what we know for sure what is in it. Now, first of all, was in, what was in this treasure chest was the stone tablets of the Ten Commandments. Every single time it mentions what's in there, whether it's a command or somebody's kind of throughout the scriptures, they say, oh, so, and then they put the tabernacle here and they did this and this was what was in the ark that day every every single time it's listed that that was in there then there's a couple of other things that are either listed to be inside of it or sometimes placed in front of it there was a jar of manna and that represented God's provision and also his warnings you better trust me I'm going to send manna six days there were this these ideas were always tied in together same thing there was also Aaron's rod which is kind of like a shepherd's staff but that's a really cool story. All of these scriptures, by the way, are in your bulletin insert if you want to look them up later. But um, Aaron's rod, when a lot of people were disputing whether he should be the high priest or not, they said, everybody bring your shepherd's staff. We're going to put it in the tabernacle overnight. They laid it all down. They all wrote their names into it, carved their names into the things. Pretty cool story. I like that. Anyhow, so they all tied in, in the morning, Aaron's staff had not only budded, it had grown flowers and 
Guess what kind of flowers and fruit was on it? Actually, nuts. Anybody was here last week? Just take a wild guess. Almonds. It wasn't even an almond tree, but it had grown almond flowers and actual almonds overnight. Because almonds represent the first fruit, the first response to God, the first complete, here's the light, boom, here comes the flower. Here It's getting warm, whoo, we're going to start growing. That's what almonds represented to the, uh, the Israelites. And so Aaron's rod budded flowers and actual almonds overnight. So they kept that in there, either laying in front of it or inside of it. All of these were symbols, all of these mattered. Now let's get a little bit closer to where the Hebrew writers were talking about. I'm going to start bringing this thing home to what all this matters to us today. In 1 Kings 6.22, when it's talking about them reimagining the tabernacle as a permanent structure, uh, which was the temple, it says this. So he finished overlaying the entire temple with gold, including the altar that belonged to the most holy place. Notice he doesn't say that it's in it, but he makes it really clear that it belonged to the most holy place. That altar of prayer was on the outside of the curtain, but that's not where it was really supposed to be ideologically. Prayer is what's supposed to connect us with God himself. Prayer is what's supposed to connect us with the actual presence of God. And in the old covenant, in the old tabernacle, in the old way, in the old testament, that wasn't possible. But in the new testament that the Hebrew writers are writing about, suddenly it was. Is this starting to make a little bit more sense now? In fact, if you look at that elegant Greek, and I, man, I spent way too much time looking at the, so many sources this week. But if you look at it, that the word that we translate where it was basically, like its location actually means belonged. It be, the, the ark that belonged in the most holy place. Not that it was physically there, but that's where it really belonged. Even sometimes what looks like a mistake in God's word can lead us into powerful truths that he wants us to know. And that happens all the time with his laws. The original laws were on these tablets of stone. But even then, it was never about just the laws. It was never about lists. It was about our heart and our soul. Listen to these verses from the Old Testament. These are, this is the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 30.10 says, The Lord your God will delight in you if you obey his voice and if you keep the commands and decrees written in this book of instructions and if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul. Psalm 40, verse 8. Read this one with me. This is a prayer. I take joy in doing your will, my God, for your instructions are written on my heart. This idea of God's word being written on our heart is so powerful and it's throughout the New Testament. Here's one example. 2 Corinthians 3, 3. Paul writes, Clearly, you are a letter from Christ showing the result of our ministry among you. This letter is written not with pen and ink, but with the spirit of the living God. It is carved not on tablets of stone, but on human hearts. And all the way back in the Old Testament, the prophet Jeremiah, remember Jesus fulfilled the law and the prophets. 
Listen to what Jeremiah wrote. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt. They broke that covenant. Though I love them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But in those days, everyone will know me. Here's the truth. This is what God has always offered, even in the strict, the laws are written on stone days. And it absolutely matters and applies to us today in the post-Jesus, still-Jesus era. God has three things that he offers and wants from us. He wants each of us to repent, obey, and be transformed. I'd like you to say that out loud with me. This is not a scripture, but I want you to remember it. Would you say that out loud? God wants each of us to repent, obey, and be transformed. I'm pretty sure almost everybody, if not everybody, understands exactly what those mean, but I want to make sure. So I'm going to walk you through this. Repent means do a 180. Repent means you're going away from God, you turn and you walk toward God. You're saying, I'm in charge, I'll do what I want. If, if it comes down to what God says or what I say, I'm going to choose me. You do a 180, you go the other way and you say, nope, if it comes down to me or God, I'm going to choose God. Repent means literally do a U-turn. That's what the word means. That's, it means completely switch, change directions completely. Obey means obey. <laughs> it means do what the person in charge says. That's it. It's that simple. We try to make it complicated. We try to go, well, you know, I think God's commanded that. I really do. I see that. I think that's real. I believe that. I'll attend a church that says that God said that because I see it here in the Bible. That's cool. I'm not actually going to do it. That's not obeying. And be transformed is something that only God can do. That's something that he promises that when we sacrifice ourselves to him uh, as, as a living sacrifice, that he will transform us. Our minds will get renewed. That when we make a choice after choice, day after day kind of a, a, a sacrifice to him, we present ourselves to him every single day, that over time we are actually transformed into a completely different person. And anything less, listen to me, anything less is we are settling for way less than God's will for us. Some of you guys are really good at keeping rules. Some of you guys have almost never broken any rules ever. Some of you guys, your whole life have been rule breakers. That's what you do. I can say that not out of judgment for any of you guys or anything. I just know this is humanity. This is how we all are. Some of us actually love to just run wild and then hopefully at the very last minute get saved, get forgiven. You know, we love that thing about, that's not in the Bible, by the way, but the idea it's easier to get forgiveness and permission. Everybody heard that? Some of us live by that. Some of us are like, man, I, the, the worst thing that could possibly happen is if I got in trouble. The worst thing that possibly happened is people think I'm a rule breaker. And we, we'll, we'll do anything. We'll do anything to keep from breaking that rules. That's what this story was about with the father and his two sons in Luke 15. The younger son, he looked at what the father was offering and he said, this is ridiculous. At best, according to their culture, when my dad dies, I'm going to get a third of everything. My brother gets two-thirds. That's already not fair. 
He's probably going to live a long time. I'm going to have to wait a long time to do that. By the time I get whatever I'm going to get coming to me, I'm going to be too old to enjoy it. This is nuts. This is crazy. Hey, Dad, give me what I'm going to get now, and I'm just out of here. From his perspective, if you try your best, honestly, this is possible. You could, you could mess around. You could get, you get her, and you could go, you know what? That actually makes some sense. He's clearly the bad guy in the story, but do you, do you see what I'm saying? In his mind at that moment, it made lots of sense. That's why he was willing to do something like that. And man, he goes off, and for a little while, it's, it's party city. But meanwhile, think about his brother. He's the rule keeper. He's the one that at, at most of the time when we tell this story, we stop when the son comes home. We stop when he kills the fatted calf and throws a party. My son was dead, and now he lives. He was lost, and now he found. Woo! That's a great part of the story, but it's not the end. The end of that story, Jesus keeps going, and it said, Meanwhile, the other son heard all the party going on, and he gets ticked. What's going on? See, here's what happened. I think you know that story, so I'm going to just jump to the punchline, jump to the moral of the story. He was still there. He was still following all the rules, but he didn't know his dad. He didn't know his dad's heart. He didn't have a communication between him and his dad. He didn't even know that if he would have just asked, his dad would let him have any of the animals that he wanted to throw a party anytime he wanted. His dad's like, this, this house is your house, dude. Your brother took everything he was going to get. You already have your inheritance. It's right here. You've got it. You just got to live it. And he had no idea. He was right there. He hadn't gone off and wasted all that time and all that money and all that sin. He, hadn't, he didn't have all of that stuff against him. But he was still missing it. And here's what I believe for each one of us this morning. This is as we, as we wrap up together with some scripture and one last thought. This is what I hope that every single person in here hears from God. And that's this. He wants to know you. He wants you to know him. He wants, he has torn that curtain down. That, that prayer altar used to be on the outside of the curtain, but it's always belonged on the inside of the curtain. Are you following me? Even when it had to be on the outside, it still belonged on the inside. And now it is. When, when that curtain was torn metaphorically and literally, on the night Jesus died, there's just one great big room. If you accept the atonement and you accept the cleansing, you walk into the holy place and the holy of holies all at once, and you are already in the presence of God. You just got to live like it. You just got to keep digging deeper so you can understand what that means. Read these last scriptures with me. We're going to wrap up with some scripture and, and then one last thought here together. 2 Corinthians 7.1. Because we have these promises, dear friends, let us cleanse ourselves from everything that can defile our body or spirit. And let us work toward complete holiness because we fear God. For the kind of sorrow God wants us to experience leads us away from sin 
and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. But worldly sorrow, which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. Let's just keep going. And so, dear brothers and sisters, we can boldly enter heaven's most holy place because of the blood of Jesus, by his death, most holy place. And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. For our guilty consciences have been sprinkled with Christ's blood to make us clean, and our bodies have been washed with pure water. Let us hold tightly without wavering to the hope we affirm, for God can be trusted to keep his promise. Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. As the band comes and we offer this invitation to come and make any kind of decision God's putting on your heart, here's, here's all I need you to understand and remember today. Where are the tabernacles? One of the things that a lot of people don't notice in those three lost stories is all those things started out belonging to the person who lost them. Have you ever seen that? The coin belonged to the woman. It wasn't some random coin she just found on the sidewalk. That was her coin. The sheep was part of the shepherd's flock, and it wandered off. The son was one of his sons. These are stories primarily, I believe they can be applied to talk to, about lost people and how to come to Christ, but I think they're primarily about those of us who've just been missing it. And if you feel like you've been missing it, either because you've been running away or because you're just not in tune with God as much as you could be with all he's given you, this is you. This is your chance. You are the physical manifestation of God on this planet right now. You are the one who can come. And no matter how broken you feel, no matter how, how far away from God you feel, for whatever reason, you can come to him today. And you can walk straight through that curtain and you can meet with the God who created you and who loves you and who bought you back and wants to know you. If that means giving your life to him the first time, giving it back to him again, joining this congregation, whatever that means to you, if you just need prayer, please, would you come to him this morning? Would you please make that choice now?